Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Previously in our study of the book of Romans chapter 4, Pastor Murphy expounded on the doctrine of justification by faith alone for salvation. Today we'll move on to the next section of Romans and see how it also relates to justification. All right, turn with me please to the book of um, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter uh, number 5. And I'd like to read from verse number 1 of this chapter. And uh, let's see how far we can get in Romans chapter 5 this evening. Romans 5, reading from verse number 1. I want to read from verse number 1 of this chapter and uh, follow with me please as I read. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace where we may stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation work of patience and patience, experience, and experience, hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given unto us. But when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet for adventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but also joy in God to our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the atonement. Tonight we begin chapter number five. In this marvelous book of the Apostle Paul, what I consider to be one of his grandest literary achievements, both in terms of its contents and the depths of the meaning that we find in this particular book. You must agree with me that there's no greater expositor of Christian doctrine than the Apostle Paul. He has no peers and he has no equal. He is just an amazing mind and he takes that mind and he brings it to bear upon Scripture. Yet when you read this doctrinal section uh, in this chapter, even though it has some of the most profound truth, it also has some of the most comforting and exhilarating teaching uh, of the blessings that the believer has because he's justified. Now remember that prior to chapter 5, the Apostle Paul has completed his thoughtful exposition of what justification is by faith. Uh, Paul has explained this doctrine in chapter 4. He has illustrated this doctrine in chapter 4. He has supported this doctrine by reference to the book of Psalms and David, how David confirms this truth about justification by faith. He has answered the objections to this whole matter in terms of works, in terms of circumcision in terms of law 
And then having done that, he discussed the nature of the faith of justification. And finally, the Apostle Paul delves into the contents of what is true justifying faith. You know, today we have a very vague, hollow conception of what Christianity is. Uh, Today, if you ask a person what it is to be a Christian, they use a very glib term to believe. But to believe what? Uh, The Apostle Paul is deeply concerned that we understand that when we say we believe and that we are justified, that there are certain things that we must believe in. And Paul points out that there are five basic fundamental things a man must believe in before he can be a Christian. And nobody, nobody is a Christian who doesn't believe these five things. Paul said we must believe that God raised Christ from the dead. So if you don't believe in God the Father, you can mark it down. You're not entering the kingdom. You must also believe that Jesus Christ was resurrected. And I want to repeat, not everybody believes in the physical resurrection of Christ. You must also believe that Jesus Christ being resurrected is Lord of the universe. And then thirdly, you must believe, fourthly, you must believe that he was delivered up for offenses, as Paul said, and he was raised for our justification. Now, if you don't believe that, and you don't understand that, I want to say to you, you may have something called religion, but you don't have justifying faith. Remember, Paul is very, very careful to make sure that we understand it has content. These are things that you must believe to be a Christian. Now, you don't hear people preaching that on the radio. You don't hear that on TBN. You'll never hear that on TBN. You never heard uh, Joe Esteen dealing with a sermon like that. All you get is let's feel happy and, and, uh, you know, God is going to help you feel better and your, your best dreams are yet ahead of you. Uh, that's the kind of uh, preaching that people seem to be absorbed in. But when it comes to clear biblical teaching on these matters, there's a distaste uh, for such teaching. So we got to understand that there are things that constitute core truths as far as justifying faith is concerned. But the question now has to do what follows after man is justified by faith in Jesus Christ. You'll find in chapter 5, the Apostle Paul begins to enumerate the blessings that flow out of a justified faith in Christ Jesus. And these are the things that Paul will deal with in here. You notice that he begins this verse by saying, therefore, there's a logic to Christianity. In other words, because of all I've said to you, therefore, this is the conclusion, these are the deductions you can reach. Christianity follows an order. There's logic to it. There's sequence to it. One follows the other. The Apostle Paul wants us to understand that we can draw certain deductions as Christians if we have true justifying faith. So the Apostle Paul is now about to show us that there are certain things that flow out of this doctrine that are blessings that the believer uh, has as a result of being Justified. Now I want to do something tonight. I, I want to give you an overall picture of this new section Paul is going into. If we were to follow what we been saying in the first uh, two chapters, Paul deals with sin. In the next two chapters, chapters 3 and 4, Paul deals with how a sinner can be justified before God. No, he's moving into chapter 5. He's going from chapter 5 to chapter 8. There's one main theme in chapter 5 to chapter 8. And what the Apostle Paul is going to show you in chapter 5 to 8, and he's going to emphasize that the believer who is secure, who is uh, justified before God is absolutely secure. There's nothing whatsoever that can rob the believer of his final destiny. 
This is the theme that Paul will give you from chapter 5 to chapter number 8. And he uses all kinds of arguments to prove to you as far as how you can know that you're absolutely secure. Now, I'll mention that in the end, why it is so important. I meet people all the time in visitation. When you ask them, you know a Christian. Well, I, who can know if you're a Christian? You ever meet that all the time? I mean, they think that you're being audacious. That you are uh, somehow being overconfident. Uh, they say you can never know that you're a true Christian, that you're going to heaven until after you die and then you find out. But that's not biblical teaching. Now whether you be a Jehovah's Witness or Seventh-day Adventist or Catholic, none of these people have assurance that where they're going. They just don't know where they're going. And they will tell you that nobody can know. Now because they don't know, they don't think you can't know. <laughs> And that's the problem. They're always throwing that out to you. How how you know? Are you being arrogant in doing? The difference between them and us is this. We take the word of God seriously. And if God teaches something in his word and gives us his word, our faith is based on the word. Their faith is based on what the priest said or what the pope said or what the church says or what the organization says. But they're not guided by what the word of God says. As a matter of fact, most of them that sit in church Sunday after Sunday never read the Bible. The only time they ever use the Bible is when they come to church. They dust it off and bring it to church. And they've been going to church for years, but never know what the Bible teaches itself. And that is one of the great tragedies of our modern times. That we have people who are in the churches who are not informed and not knowledgeable. Because the word of God is not a, a part of their daily life. And consequently... They always think that you're being arrogant when you make certain claims that the Bible tells us and that we can have. So what Paul is going to do um, in this chapter, in these four chapters, chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, the Apostle Paul wants you to know that because you're a justified person, that you are absolutely, completely, irrevocably, and finally secure. You don't have to bite your nails at night wondering, well, if something happened to me, where I'm going. Those days have gone for the believer who's really justified. There's certainty in the Christian faith. And that certainty is not based on arrogance. That certainty is based on scripture. What God says in his word. So the Apostle Paul is going to deal with this matter. And he's going to point out, uh, coming from chapter 5, coming to chapter 8. Chapter 8, he's going to declare that there's absolutely nothing that can separate the believer from the love of God. Nothing, absolutely nothing. That chapter 8 climaxes what he begins in chapter 5. And you will only understand chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8 if you understand the overall theme is to establish the believer's absolute security who is justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I want to show you that tonight, and I want to give you a panoramic survey of uh, these chapters to give you an idea of what Paul writes in these chapters. In chapter 5 and verse 1 to 2, the Apostle Apostle Paul talks about the blessings of the justified man. And he talks that because we are justified before God, we have absolute peace with God. I repeat, God is not at war with you anymore anymore. There's the amnesty, you've secured this amnesty by faith in Jesus Christ. And you can be absolutely sure that God's anger has turned away from you. And you are now in a relation of peace with God. 
You're in peace with God not because you're a good person. You're in peace with God because you've trusted what Christ has done for you and being justified, God has declared to you that the war is over and he's at peace with you. Then he talks about having access. But he says really in verses 1 to 2 that the blessing, the ultimate blessing is that the justified believer is going to be glorified. We rejoice in the glory of God. That's the point. That's the theme that begins this, this little section. That's the things that the believer has in verses uh, 1 to 2. The Apostle Paul talks about these three blessings. Identifying peace, access, but finally this mother of ultimate glory. You notice how Paul goes from justification to glory? Can I say to you there's one package? One package. If you have justification, you have glorification. If you don't have glorification, you don't have justification... Glorification comes with justification. So once a man is justified, he's ultimately going to be in glory. That is not an option. That is a settled fact. And that's what the Apostle Paul deals with it. In verses 3 to 5 of chapter 5, the Apostle Paul points out that because this is true, that we have this final glory, he tells us that the worst form of tribulation can do nothing to affect or standing before God. It can't shake us. Whatever tribulation we face in life. Can never shake the believer. So that he's no longer justified. Or he will not receive his glorification. Tribulation. Nothing basically could, could shake him in that regard. In verses 6 to 11. The apostle Paul points out. That while we can be absolutely sure. That we the justified believer. Is going to reach ultimate glorification. Because everything the justified believer has is dependent on God. You know what he says? Paul says God loved us when we were sinners. When we were enemies. God loved us and God redeemed us and God justified us when we were enemies. And then Paul asked the question, if he did that when you were an enemy, how should he not give you much more now after you become his child? So what Paul points out there that the absolute security of the believer is unalterably certain because everything depends upon God. And if God was kind towards you and merciful to you while you were a sinner, Paul is asking, know your son, how is it possible that he's not going to give you everything that he has promised you based on the fact that you now have sonship? In other words, if when you were a sinner, God loved you enough to send his son to die for you and to bring you into the kingdom, know your son, how in the world he's not going to bring you to final glory? That's Paul's argument. He's arguing very consistent. And then when you come to chapter, verse number 12 to 19, perhaps the greatest reason the believer can know that he's absolutely secure is that Paul talks about the union of the believer in Christ. What strikes a person when you read chapter number 5 that Paul is here dealing with a justified believer and suddenly brings in Adam. You know why he does that? He reminds the believer that before you were justified in Christ, you were in Adam. You were incorporated into Adam. You are part of the old man. But the moment you put your faith and trust in Christ, you were removed from Adam and you were incorporated into Christ. And it's that union between you and Christ that guarantees your absolute security and glorification. I don't know if believers really understand this doctrine of the mystical union of Christ. But the Bible says we died with Christ, we raised with Christ, and guess what? We're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Could I tell you this? This is why I have a problem with the outer darkness doctrine. 
the outer dark. That's the problem I have with it. Because when a person is justified, he's not only died with Christ, raised with Christ, but already seated with Christ in heavenly places. How are you going to take a person in Christ and send him into outer darkness? The Apostle Paul uses the biblical concept of the union between the believer in Christ. And he, he says to us when we read that, this guarantees our absolute security. So we're no longer in the old Adam. We're in the new Adam, the last Adam. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. A transformation has taken place that cannot be changed. This is something that God has done. It's the work of God in the life of the believer. And then when you come down to verse number 20 and 21 of chapter 5, Paul points out again, you are absolutely secure because grace triumphs over sin. He said, where sin abounded, grace much more abound. And because God deals with us on the basis of grace and not on the basis of merit, the believer who puts his faith and trust in Christ can be absolutely sure that he is safe and secure and it can be certain that glory is his final abode. And again, I want to repeat this. It's because that God deals with us on the basis of grace. That we can be sure that we as Christians have an ultimate uh, place in glory. Nothing can wreck this. It's by grace alone. It's by faith alone. And uh, Paul is arguing very clearly in this as chapter number five. These are the reasons why you can know that you are secure and you will have final glory. Now when we come to chapter six and seven, the apostle Paul now begins to deal with objections to this teaching. Because when you tell a man he's saved by faith, by grace alone, and he's eternally secure in Christ and glory is certain, Paul said, but if you tell a man that, do you not encourage him to sin because he knows he's saved and therefore if he's saved, it cannot affect his, his destiny? And that's the thing that is thrown to us a lot of times when we tell people that we believe in eternal security. They say, but if, a, if you teach a man that he's eternally secure, that in Christ, once he's in Christ, nothing can happen to separate from the love of Christ. Then they say, but does that not encourage that man to say, well, well, I'm eternally secure, I'm going to heaven, therefore if I sin, it doesn't matter? And that's what Paul answered in chapter number 6. Uh, do we sin now that grace might abound? And what Paul teaches in that passage is a person that thinks that way does not understand the union between the believer in Christ. He hasn't grasped that doctrine. That when we died with Christ and we were raised with Christ, the old man was crucified, we were raised in newness of life. And then he teaches us very clearly that we must now reckon this to be true in our lives and live. On that basis. So it doesn't encourage a believer to sin. The problem when a person thinks like that. Is because they don't understand biblical truth. They don't understand the mystical union between the believer Christ. And what are the ramifications of that. So Paul deals with that in chapter number 6. And we will come to that. Dealing with what people call the believer's sanctification. And victory over, over sin. How do you get victory over sin? We'll deal with that because Paul lays it down before you how you can have victory over sin. Whatever sin you've got here that dominates your life. I got an email sometime this week. Uh, there's a group of LS, uh, LBGT, IQ, whatever it is. There are a group of them now that are now on, online uh, telling the people that 
They can have victory over this, these kind of sins in their life and they're now forming a, a kind of a website. You can go and you can see what I'm talking about. What they're calling about freedom in Christ. They're now saying to the world, we're not born this way. We know we were not born this way. And how we got, we got delivered through the power of Christ. See? So you've now got a reaction see, to this matter. By the way, my son just showed me an email while I was in the van where uh, in England... A six-year-old child has now got to write her teacher, who is a lesbian, saying that she loved her. She loved the, the teacher, even though she... You imagine posting a six-year-old child to write those kind of things to a teacher? But that's the kind of power governments have, etc., to bring to bear, pressurize even a six-year-old to write those kind of things to the lesbian teachers. I'll tell you what, if there's my child, they won't write one letter. If you got to go to send him to another school, or send him another, if I got to teach him at home, you teach him at home, teach him at home. I will not endorse that kind of a lifestyle uh, because it is not biblical, it is not scriptural, it's, not, it's wrong. They were not born that way. It's a choice that people make in that regard. See? So, in chapter six, Paul deals with the matter. Paul is saying a man is justified by faith alone, a man is saved by grace alone, and then the people saying, "But Paul, if that's if you teach this kind of thing in the church, you encourage people to just live in sin because they'll say I'm already saved, so therefore it doesn't matter how I live." And Paul is saying, people that think that way do not understand this doctrine of the union between the believer in Christ. See? So grace is not a license to sin. Justification is not a license to sin. It's the very opposite. See? And uh, Paul begins to deal with that in chapter number 6. Uh, they were concerned about antinomianism. Lawlessness. People living... Uh, because they're saved, uh, just doing what they want to, because we tell them that they're saved, and save one, save all, we save. That encourages them to, to live that way. By the way, you notice the Apostle Paul doesn't shun away from the doctrine of eternal security of the believer, because that's the way people think. It's not how you think, it's what truth says. It's what God says. See? And Paul is dealing with that in this, in this uh, particularly, he points out very clearly the very opposite effect. Happens when a person truly understands what justification is, what the grace of God is, and this union between the believer and Christ. That, sir, incentivizes the believer to do his utmost best to not live in sin, but to stay away from sin. See? You know, I put it this way. In chapter 6, I think of Corinthians, uh, Paul thought was dealing with the whole question of fornication within the, the church at Corinth. And uh, joined into, um, and, and Paul said, you know, the believer that is joined to a harlot joins the Lord to the harlot. Because there's this union between the believer and Christ. How can I know the Holy Spirit indwells me? How can I know that I'm one in Christ? I'm in Christ. Then how can I do those kind of things and make Christ a participant in those things? To incriminate him in my sinful act. Christian doesn't think that way. A Christian is fearful and thoughtful. How can I... Bring Christ into this kind of a thing. See, that's how a Christian thinks. He's concerned about Christ and how people perceive Christ, etc., etc. And nothing will keep you away from these kind of sins like fornication and adultery and so on, except you have a true biblical understanding of these matters and they become part of your life. See. No more kind of pressure you put on young people today. And you can talk about age, you can talk about herpes, you can talk about chancroid. You can talk about genital warts if you want. You can talk about gonorrhea and syphilis. The other 20 
STDs are out there. You can talk about it. You think any of that has any effect on these people? Absolutely not. What, what makes the change is when you begin to understand the power of Christ in your life. That is what brings about the change. Nothing else will outside of this. And then when we come to chapter number 7, the Apostle Paul takes up another issue that has to be dealt with extensively in chapter number 7. Here it is, because Paul is saying that the law has no vital part in salvation. And the question is, well, Paul, if you make that clear that the law is, is, is not vital to salvation, then what is the purpose of the law? Where does it fit into God's scheme of redemption? And in chapter number 7, Paul deals with the whole question of the law and the believer. And Paul explains that because the believer is united to Christ and married to Christ, as it were, he's dead to the law. See? Because a person can't marry somebody under the law unless the person be dead. And Paul says, we became dead in Christ, and therefore we became married to Christ. He brings back this biblical union between Christ to deal with the whole question of the law. And then he explains what the law is about. The whole law was designed to bring men to Christ. Never a means of salvation. Never. But again, you don't hear that kind of teaching today. Uh, it is something that is not taught because, I repeat, the people are not informed. They're not reading their Bibles. They don't study the scriptures in this matter. And then having dealt with uh, these objections in chapter 6 and chapter 70, climaxes with chapter number 8. And, and uh, it's incredible that chapters 6 and 7 are a parenthesis. We, what he starts in chapter number 5, he has to deal with objections in chapter 6 and 7. And then he comes back to where he started. And he says again, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Notice he started with therefore in chapter 5 verse 1. He had this long parenthesis dealing with objections. And then now he comes by and says, there is now therefore no condemnation to them that are in Christ. He brings them back to where he started again. And then at the end of chapter number 8. The Apostle Paul gives us one of the most glorious triumphant affirmations that crowns the teaching on this matter of the believer's security when he utters these words and said, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angel nor principalities nor power nor things present nor things to come nor heights nor depths, Paul said, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ, uh, love of God in Christ Jesus. That's how he climaxes this whole thing. Saying finally, nothing, absolutely nothing can come between the believer and the love of Christ. Now if you get hold of this kind of truth as a believer, your life is a life of certainty. Not a question of whether I, I lost today or, or something. You know, that's not, that must not come into play with the believer. God wants his children to know that they are his. I've often said this. It'd be a miserable thing to go through life not knowing who my mommy is. Seriously. Can you imagine living all your life wondering, well, I wonder if that's my mommy, that's my real daddy. One moment you're sure, the next moment you're sure. What kind of a life can you live like that? Well, transfer that now to your Christian life. What kind of Christian life can you live if one day you say, I I'm saved, the next day you say, you're not saved, you're not too sure who's your father. That's not what God wants the believer. The believer needs to be sure and certain on this matter. And so Paul deals with this. My point I'm making here tonight is that Paul goes from justification to glorification because it is one package. Look at chapter 5 and verse number 1 and 2 and notice what he says there. And I point out to you again. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace 
and rejoice in what? The hope of the glory of God. That's the end. The justified man can rejoice in the hope of the glory. And by the way, the word hope here does, is not I hope so. In the expectation, that's what it means. That he will be glorified. See? Then look at chapter number 8 and verse number 30. And notice what he says again. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, he justified. And whom he justified, he what? He glorified. He jumped from justification to glorification. You can't have one without the other. And once you have the first one, you'll always have the last one. It comes as one package. See? And that's why the believer should have such absolute certainty as to where he stands with God in respect to where he is ultimately going. The believer should have blessed assurance. And the believer should know exactly why he has this blessed assurance. Now, I... I I want to point out to you, brethren, that not everyone has this kind of certainty, this kind of assurance. Today, there are many people who are burdened under the weight of the treadmill of works, laboring and striving to find the favor of God and the mercy of God. They're tiring themselves out to somehow please God and to get God's mercy. They live under this tremendous burden every day that they've got to do this and do more and do more. And they're still not too sure if they've done enough. It's a burden that they carry. That burden is lifted off those person's shoulder the moment they become justified in Christ and exercise their faith and trust in Jesus. That burden is now lifted because when you're justified, God declares you righteous. You're given the righteousness of Christ. You become God's son. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit. You are secure. The burden is lifted. I, I learned this week, uh, as I told you, that we're doing a series on the cults. And I bought three books online. And I've been really reading these books on the Jehovah's Witness. And my heart has felt so sad for these people. Really, really sad for these I've never felt this kind of sadness yet for the Jehovah's I always saw them as a nuisance. When they come to my house, I, I just, you go and talk to them. I'm not interested in that. Uh, I, I've never really had a disposition to really want to sit down and talk to any of them because they practice what I call a butterfly human nutics. They run from one passage to the next passage. There's no logical sequence to what they teach you. And therefore, they're moderation. But then as I studied the cult this week in more depth, I earned a greater appreciation for the fact that you're living with the people who are totally deceived. If you don't believe in spiritual darkness, there is such a thing as spiritual darkness. And I'm totally convinced this is what has happened to the Jehovah's Witness community. You remember Paul said that the Jews today read the book of Moses and there's a veil over their eyes. They can't see, they're reading the same book you're reading. But they can't see Christ anywhere in the, in the Old Testament. They say Christ is a deceiver. But then Paul says, in Christ, that veil is removed in Christ. So they're blind. They're religiously blind. Paul said they have a zeal according to, uh, to uh, zeal but not according to knowledge. And I'm saying that to say this. 
The kind of certainty that we can have and assurance we can have as justified believers, those people just don't have. And I'll tell you why in just a moment. These are the things that I've learned about, about that particular group. Do you know that they teach that only 144,000 are going to heaven? I think you know that. Now imagine that. There are 9 billion people on planet earth and only 144,000. And I'm not talking about today. What about, what about the billions before? So only 144,000 going to heaven. But here's something else even more. That number, 144,000, was cut off in 1935. So the 144,000 were in the kingdom in 1935. Now you think about that for just a moment. Think of what that means. How can you be part of a religion that believes that everybody going to heaven was cut off in 1935? I was reading this stuff and I'm where they got this stuff from? Well, Russell was given a vision because, you know, they believe that Jesus returned in 1915 and he rules through the Watchtower community. So Christ is actually reigning invisibly through the Watchtower people and, and he channels all his, all his knowledge, all his truth through the Watchtower society. They're like Protestant popes. It's just that it's not a pope, it's an organization who God speaks through. But listen to this. The 144,000 that ended in 1935 are the only ones that are justified. They're the only ones that are born again. They're the only ones that will rule with Christ and they're the only ones that will become spirit beings. Not only that, they're the only ones that take communion. If you go to a JW church anywhere and they have communion, the only people who could take communion is those who believed that they're part of the 144,000. But again, that ended in 1935. So that means you have to be at least 90 or 95. When I was reading this stuff, I was so overwhelmed. How could people be in such darkness? How could you believe that? So what they teach that the gospel of hope that we preach, that our hope is eternal glory with God, that gospel of hope stopped being preached in 1935. So they no longer preach the gospel of hope of an eternal inheritance. So what do they teach today? Well, they teach that only the little flock, the 144,000 is going to heaven, but there is a great multitude that belong to another fold, and that's where every other Jehovah's Witness today is at. You know what Christ's atonement death is about? It's not about justifying you eternally so that you are absolutely secure in the righteousness of Christ. What Christ's atonement death did is that he put you back where Adam was. And now you have had to work your way to show God that you're faithful. And if you can prove God that you're faithful, then you're going to enter not the heavenly kingdom, but the earthly kingdom. So the hope of the Jehovah's Witness today is that they're not going to heaven. They're going to be part of an earthly kingdom for a thousand years. But get this. Even after you've been on earth for a thousand years with him, you still can lose it because unless you're faithful during a thousand years, you can lose out. Now tell me how in God's heaven a person can live that way. Where's the joy? 
Where's the peace? How can you go through life wondering how faithful? Well, I mean, I, I've done all of this now. And by the way, now I understand the motivation. For the first time, I really understand the motivation why they slam tar knock on doors and give out awake magazines and so on and so forth. It's because they're trying to be faithful to the faithful servant, which is the Watchtower Society. And your faithfulness to that Watchtower Society will determine whether or not you escape Armageddon and be part of the thousand years. So what the Jehovah is living for today is to live on earth for a thousand years with Christ. That's what he's living for today. He's not looking to be... By the way, they even say that Jesus Christ was born again. He and the 144 are the only people who were born again. That's why he was raised as a spirit. See, I'm saying all of that to say this. The Apostle Paul is telling the believer here that when you're justified before God, you have absolute certainty as to your final destiny. You will be glorified. No question about that. No if, buts, or maybes. You will be glorified. As long as you're a justified believer, you will be glorified. And the Apostle Paul is piling argument upon argument, dealing with objections to give this matter of great certainty. And while I was reading that, it is then that I realized that uh, as I was reading the JW as well, that I begin to understand how they are in so much darkness as a people. See? And they're looking for a renewed paradise here on earth for a thousand years. They have no certainty at all in this matter. There's no finality to this whole matter. How faithful you can be and whether you've been faithful enough will only be decided in that final moment. Can you imagine living your life like that? Honest to God, can you imagine the threadmill of works, the burden of works, of going, 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 exhausting yourself, trying to get into the kingdom by how much your work you can do and how faithful you are? It's a tremendous burden. Tremendous burden. The Apostle Paul is going to deal with this in greater detail. And in chapter number five, we're going to work ourselves through these chapters and we're going to get a fuller understanding of what it really means for you as a believer. We know what it means to be justified, but what are the results of that justification? What are the benefits of it? What, are, what, 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 what accrues to us because we're justified as Christians? We need this kind of truth to give us a measure of certainty and joy in our Christian life. And without this kind of certainty and absolute certainty in this matter, I don't know how in the world we could go through this life with a smile on our face, with a hope in our heart, and a great expectation how we live. But there's a buoyancy to one's life once he grasps this final teaching. So I just want to, and that's why I'm going to end here tonight, by saying to you as a Christian who is justified that you are safe, that you are secure, uh, that you will have this ultimate glorification that Paul talks about. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can change it. Nothing can hinder it. It is yours and it comes as a package. You know, when you got to an insurance policy, there needs to be a signature there. Not only your signature, but the signature of whoever runs the insurance company. And I want to say that when Jesus Christ died on the cross and he signed the new covenant, that covenant was signed in the blood of Jesus Christ. But there's more to it. Every covenant and everything has a seal. I've got documents that come in here all the time telling me, Pastor, I need to do this passport form. 
I need to do this. And I got I to gotta get the church seal and put the church seal on it. Could I say to you that not only is it signed in the blood of Christ, but the Bible says we are sealed with the Spirit unto the day of redemption. We have the seal of God on us. And that means that we are safe and we are secure. And by the way, you, you, you know, if, a, if, a, if, you, if the, uh, I don't want to say Her Majesty the Queen, but if she sent a document to you with HMS and she puts the seal in there and puts the wax on it and thing, you, you know, you, 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 you're in real trouble if you break that seal and it didn't go to you. Real trouble? You got all the weight of the British government behind that particular seal. See? And I want to say to you today, uh, as we begin to deal with chapter number five and deal with it in greater detail, I'm just saying to you, that's the broad outline of what Paul is going to begin to cover. We're going to pick up each item by item and, ex- and expound on these particular things. But I just want to give you a broad picture to say to you, nothing, absolutely nothing can separate you if you're born again believer, if you're justified, nothing, neither life, nor death, nor angel, nor principality, nor power, nor things present, or things to come, or any other creature can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You are safe as a Christian. And we should all be saying hallelujah to that. But we've lost the excitement of knowing where we have this outstanding uh, relationship with him and this great security that we have in believers. So I'm going to stop there tonight. I just want to whet your appetite for where we're headed in the next few Sunday nights. But we will be going through each one of these and uh, we'll try to make them as practical as possible for you to get a firmer grasp on what these things mean. If you're here tonight and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, Pastor, I don't even know what that word justified means. What do you mean by justified by faith? What do you mean by what's grace? See? You talk about secure. What security? Can a Christian have security? May I say to you, madam, man, woman, whoever you are, let me introduce you to the Christ of God and the scriptures of God and build your, your hope and your life on this word. And you'll find that you develop a great certainty. And with that certainty will come a great optimism. And with that optimism will come a great joy. And it will affect the way you live for the glory of God. This is what Paul wants us to know, and this is what we work into as we move through this particular chapter. Let's have a word of prayer. Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy begins to show us the first benefit of being justified is the believer's peace with God. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230. Or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.